So I was working our, on our taxes a few years ago, and um, it was probably April 14th, I'm sure, that I was <laughs> trying to get all of that inputted into TurboTax like I do every year. I've got it kind of figured out, and we get this stuff plugged in there, and it's usually a pretty easy thing. Got it all plugged in there and sent it off for an electronic filing and brushed the, the sweat off my brow for getting it all done and, and was relieved that taxes were done. And then I check my email and get a notification that this e-file um, has gone through and it has been declined. Okay, so our taxes are not submitted like I thought they were. What is going on here? And I kind of cipher through the email to find out why it is that this e-file has not worked like it has worked every year prior. And somewhere down in the fine print of this email, it says, um, somebody has already submitted a tax return with your social security number. Well, unless Laura is sneaking around and filing extra tax returns with her social, which um, is not like her at all to be doing taxes, um, something is terribly wrong. Something is not right here because somebody has filed a tax return with Laura's social security number. Probably one of those get cash quick filing there. And so... We were actually going to get a refund that year um, for once, and months later, we finally got all the paperwork and all the documentation and being on hold and talking to this person and talking to that person and trying to get some human in D.C. somewhere to actually look at our information, and we finally convinced them that, yes, this is really us. Same address, same employers, same filing, everything, and they finally realized, okay, it is you, and they released our refund. And then we start getting the calls from the collection agency wanting to know why we have not paid our rent. I own a house. We're not renting anything. Why would we owe rent to an apartment across town? Somebody has rented an apartment with Laura's social security number and information. And so we get that taken care of. And then we start getting the calls from AT&T wondering why we're not paying for our iPhone anymore and several other things along the way. So we now are renting an apartment, have an iPhone, and are filing taxes that are not really ours. And um, luckily, AT&T and those places are much quicker in dealing with fraud than the government. Imagine that. And um, the IRS was not so quick, sorry, Lee, um, with getting us our information. But somebody had stolen Laura's identity. We don't know how, we don't know where, but they were using her social security number to gain things for themselves. And we are left with the consequences. We're left with picking up the pieces, trying to get it all figured out, making sure things are not hit on our credit score, making sure that the collectors know not to come after us, that we actually are not renting that apartment. And there's so much damage that has to be fixed. So time-consuming, so many phone calls. We have like this folder, like this fat of all of the, the documents and all of the 
the stuff that we had to fill out and, and return to be able to, to deal with this. We still are facing the consequence of this. We, we still have to file with a special pen from the IRS. Even, even now, years later, we have to use a special code to say, yes, this is our return. This is who we say we are. And so we're in the midst of this series called Identity Theft, where we are looking at an enemy who comes in and takes our personal information, comes and takes the identifiers for us, takes our identity and uses it for his own gain. That he can manipulate it and change it and twist it in a way where he can benefit from it. And then we are left with the brokenness around us that we have to pick up. We're left with, with the pieces of, of things that we have to put back together. Because an enemy has come in and, and destroyed things. An enemy that comes to kill, still and destroy. And then we are faced with these consequences. Oftentimes, for a lifetime, generation after generation, as the enemy so skillfully comes in and stills. Now, people who come in and still our physical identities, they have lots of tools of the trade. Um, they, they have email phishing schemes where, where they get you to click on a link in your email and start giving them their personal information. Phone calls where they call in and ask you to confirm your information by giving it to them. Suspicious. They've got all kinds of tools to counterfeit credit cards and steal information. There are tools of the trade that's quite profitable to try to steal what is ours, to steal our identity and use it for their own gain. And in the same way, the enemy that is against us that is trying to steal our identity has tools of the trade. Common lies, common, common counterfeits to identity that he comes in and uses and convinces us of these things to twist and manipulate the truth and to steal our identity. And so we're going to go through four of these common lies, four things that really get in the way of us really understanding who our true identity is. These are lies. These are, are counterfeits of identity that are not the real us, not the real the real new creation that we have in Christ. A lot of this is adapted from the book called Search for Significance, which is, is a great resource for you if you are, are really struggling with your identity, if you're struggling with a lot of hurts and hang-ups. This is, is, is a great biblical way to look at our identity and, and who we are and, and some of the things that, that get in the way of us really understanding who we are as we search for our identities. So the first one here is this lie. I must meet certain standards to feel good about myself. This lie is called the performance trap because it says that for me to feel confident, for me to understand who I am, my identity is going to be wrapped up in what I'm able to accomplish. That if I can meet certain performance standards, if I can perform in a certain way and succeed in a certain way, then I feel good about myself. 
And then, of course, the opposite is true. If I'm not meeting those standards, if I'm not living up to the expectations that I have on myself, then I am not feeling good about myself. That my self-esteem sinks, that, that my, my frustration with myself becomes a problem. This is a, a primary deception that all of us tend towards in some degree or another, where we look at success to bring fulfillment and happiness. Where are we at in our career? Where are we at in our possessions? Where are we at status in the culture around us? We look at those things and we use those as some sort of gauge to measure our worth. That how well I perform at my job and how, how much attention I get and accolades I get now makes me feel good about myself. And then when those things do not happen, I start feeling bad about myself. We look at what we accomplish. We look at our job titles. We look at the size of our paychecks. We look at our status in society. And all of those things begin to define our identities. They define who we are. And consciously or unconsciously, we have this feeling that if we don't meet these certain criteria, oftentimes arbitrary criteria that we place upon ourselves, if we cannot meet those, if we cannot fulfill those, then our self-worth declines. Because our identity now becomes wrapped up in what we perform. And so we have this formula here where identity equals performance plus others' opinions. That my identity is dependent on what others think of me and the performance that I have. How successful am I in it, and is my identity wrapped up in that? This leads us to a fear. The enemy uses fear as a weapon. as one of his tools that he uses to bring us down and, and cause us to, to break down our identity. And he uses fear of failure in this one. That I am afraid that I am going to fail. I am afraid that, that I'm not going to make it. And so this fear comes in. This fear that I'm not good enough. I'm not significant enough. I'm not sufficient for the things that I'm in. And so we begin to cope with this fear in, in several different ways. Um, perfectionism is one of those ways of coping with that. Um, perfectionism, it can be a curse. I speak from personal experience on this one. Where you want everything to be right. You want it to be right. Because it is a reflection on you. It's a reflection on your identity. That, that having things done well is okay. But when you cross that line into perfectionism that is a destructive habit, a destructive coping mechanism, where you cannot have failure around you because your identity is wrapped up in the success of it. And so you do not allow things to fail. And that's where perfectionism becomes this destructive habit. It also comes out in an unhealthy drive to succeed. We see this in a lot of, of, of career pathways where there is an unhealthy drive to succeed. Wanting to do well at a job is perfectly fine. Succeeding at your job is fine. But when your identity is wrapped up in that, when your self-worth is wrapped up in your success at your job, 
that's when the line is crossed. And there becomes an unhealthy desire for success, an unhealthy drive to get to the next rung of the ladder. It also causes us to manipulate others to achieve success because success becomes more important than the relationships with the people around you. And so you will use people and manipulate people and climb over people for the sake of success. And then another part is a withdrawal or avoidance of risks. So this fear of failure, it can drive you to, to success and in an unhealthy way. Or it can have the exact opposite effect, where you are so afraid of failing. You are so afraid of looking bad that you won't even try. That you won't even take that step out and take that risk. You just give up before you even try. Because if I can give up before I step out there, if, if I don't commit to trying, then it's not a failure. And then I don't have to look bad. And so I can just avoid altogether the problem by not even trying. And so if you get stuck in that rut, there's a lack of creativity. There's a lack of healthy risk. There's, there's a lack of stepping out into what God is calling you to do. Because you're too afraid of messing up. Because your identity is wrapped up in your successes. And so this performance trap, this lie, becomes the first tool that the enemy uses to bring us down. To create us a counterfeit identity. But Jesus comes and gives us the anecdote for this. Gives us the defense for this. Gives us the antivirus software that we can put on here. So that we don't fall victim of this deceit. And for this one, we call it justification. Justification, it's one of those churchy words, it's one of those, those, those things that we, we look at, and it means that, that God not only forgives me of my sins, but he grants me the righteousness of Christ as well. That when I am forgiven because of what Jesus did on the cross, if I am forgiven, not only do I receive that forgiveness where he wipes it off, but I have the righteousness of Jesus. His perfection is now on me. I bear Christ's righteousness and am fully pleasing to the Father. My successes, my failures do not determine who I am. Jesus determines who I am. Because I am justified in him. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says this, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. It is in him we find this righteousness, and we take that on. We are forgiven and, and righteous because of Jesus' sacrifice. And so we're pleasing to God even in spite of our failures. That as much as we mess up, as much as we fail, I don't have to fear that. Because I am pleasing to my Father. He takes delight in me. He loves me regardless of those. Romans chapter 5 says, Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, 
We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into his grace in which we now stand. We have been justified, and we are at peace with God. We are not at war with God because of the work of Jesus. And so I do not have to give in to the lie that says I have to meet certain standards to feel good about myself because I feel good about myself because of a standard that does not change. The standard of Jesus on the cross, that does not change. The standard of God's love for me, that does not change. It is not dependent on what I do. It is not dependent on who I am. It is not, it is not dependent on my successes or failures. I do not have to fear failing because I am a success no matter what. I am successful in the eyes of God. The second one that the enemy uses is this lie. I must be approved by certain others to feel good about myself. So a little similar here, but a little different. This is where I have to have other people look at me and approve of me. And there are particular people for each of us. Some people, we could care less what they think about us. But there are those certain people, maybe it's a parent or a friend or, or a mentor or, or a teacher or somebody or somebody's that you really have to get their approval for you to feel good about yourself. And on the flip side of that, if they disapprove, man, that messes you up. If you don't have their approval... It just messes you up. And so the enemy gets in and tells us this lie. That it matters what other people think. It matters what that teacher says or doesn't say. It matters what dad says. It matters what mom says. And when we don't receive that, it crushes us. Our culture loves to pick each other apart and be, be critical of one another. And it isn't a far stretch for us to see how we get into the trap of identity being based on what others think. We're so concerned about what others think, how they see us, how they view us, and we become addicted to, to their approval. I think social media is huge for this, where we want to post the selfie, and we want to post the activities that we're doing, and there is a part of us that posts those things, seeking the approval of others. How many likes do we get? How many comments do we get? Who is liking ours, our posts? Who's not? Who is avoiding commenting on our posts? And we start to get a little consumed by that because we are concerned about what others think of us. And we post that as a way to fish for approval. It's not to say that if you post on Facebook, that's what you're doing. Because I, I know, I see a lot of your Facebook posts. <laughs> but as we've been going through um, the Sermon on the Mount and, and thinking about the heart issue, I think there, there are perfectly innocent ways to post to Facebook. Um, but you know what your heart is. And you know, or, or should become aware of, and spend some time with God on, on why you do what you do. Am I throwing this stuff out there just because it's fun? Or am I really seeking some sort of affirmation 
that I should be getting from somewhere else. This leads to a fear of rejection. We don't want people to reject us. And guys, for, for you headed off into middle school and high school, this is huge because you want everybody to like you. You want people to think highly of you. The way you dress, the way you talk, the way you behave, we want this approval because we fear being rejected. And there's such, there's such fear in there. When, when we buy into this lie, we attempt to please others at any cost. These are the yes people. They will say yes to anything and to everything because they do not want to disappoint you. They say yes to everything. And they will give up and sacrifice anything to please others. They become very sensitive to criticism and they will withdraw and isolate themselves to avoid criticism. And so when the enemy comes in and uses this tool, he uses this to steal your identity, to manipulate you, to say this lie that you have to be approved by others to feel good about yourself. And how many of you can relate to that? And we all fall into that trap, don't we? Where we really want to look good. We want others to think highly of us. But Jesus gives us a defense against this as well. And he gives us the defense of reconciliation. Reconciliation is this thing where, where two people are at war with each other and they come together and become one again. That through the fall in the garden, we are at war with God. There's brokenness in the relationship with God. That, that this decision was made to eat of the fruit and to reject God and reject what God was calling us to, and the relationship was then broken. And reconciliation is the bringing of those relationships back together. It means that even though we were hostile to God and alienated from Him, He brings us back into a relationship with Him, and we're forgiven and brought into an intimate relationship because of Jesus. And because of that, I am totally accepted by God. I am accepted by God because of this reconciliation. We don't have to fear being rejected. We don't have to fear what others think of us. We do not base our worth on what others view us as. Because through Christ, we're made whole with God that that is where our identity comes from, not in what others think about us. Colossians chapter 1 says this, Once you were alienated from God, we were divided, we were apart, we were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. But now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight, without blemish and free from accusation. If you continue in your faith established and firm and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel. That we were divided, we were broken in this relationship. And that, and that relationship is not fixed by what we do. That relationship is, is not fixed by others' opinions of us. That relationship is fixed because of Jesus on a cross. We have an unconditional acceptance in Christ. 
And so we do not have to become victims of that lie. We do not have to become victims that say, what others think about me is important. That my self-worth, my identity is not going to come from your opinions about me. My identity is not defined by what you think of my preaching, by what you think about the way I dress. My identity is found somewhere else. The third lie is this. Those who fail are unworthy of love and deserve to be punished. This is what the enemy whispers in our ears. That if you fail, you need to be punished. Or if others fail you, you need to punish them. He whispers this to us and tells us this and convinces us of this. And so this creates an atmosphere where, where we are wanting to either punish others or we fear being punished ourselves. We become harsh with others. We believe that performance reflects one's values and then we begin to blame others for their failures. We blame them and fall, or we either blame them or we fall into a self-condemnation. We want, we want to either redirect the blame to someone else and I don't own any of my blame or I take all the blame onto myself and become condemning of myself. And so this leads us to a fear of punishment. And so I live in fear that, that if I screw up, if I mess up, I'm going to be punished. Or I cannot tolerate fail, failure in other people. I can't tolerate that failure in you, and so I'm going to find ways to condemn you, to punish you when you fail in the, thing, in the, in the relationship that we're in. If you mess up, I'm going to find a way to, to rub it in your face and make you feel really bad about it. And so someone who's bought into this lie, they like to punish others. They like to blame others for their, their own personal failures. They withdraw from God and from others, and they have a drive to avoid failure. They want to avoid it at all costs because of that fear. And so the truth that gives us, um, the, the truth that Jesus gives us for this is this strange word called propitiation. It's another one of those church doctrine words, weird words. But basically it means that his death on the cross satisfies God's wrath. And therefore I'm deeply loved by God. So there is this, this weird way of looking at God that we, we, don't, we don't like to think about this. But, but the wages of sin is death, right? So sin is a bad thing. Sin is something that separates us from God. And there has to be a death for that. That God is fully righteous and perfect and holy. And sin and mistakes and, and, and evil cannot coexist with a holy and perfect God. And so the wrath of God has to come down onto that sin. The, his wrath has to come on because, because of his perfection. That the two cannot coexist. 
And so what Jesus on the cross does and, and what the sacrifices of the Old Testament was, was, was blood had to be shed for sin. And so a, a sacrifice was made to take on the wrath of God so that we would not have to take on that wrath. And so Jesus comes in as that final and perfect sacrifice, and he takes on the wrath of God in that, so that we do not have to take that on. So because of Jesus, because of, of what he did on the cross, we have a loving, intimate relationship with God. He is our Father, and we do not have to fear his wrath any longer, that he will not lash out at us. He will not attack us. He will not destroy us. His wrath will not show through because Jesus protects us from that. And so when we fail, we are not going to receive the wrath of God. His wrath is, is taken through Jesus. 1 John chapter 4, this is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us. He loved us. He sent his son for us as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. And so we do not have to punish others for their mistakes. We don't have to be punished ourselves for our own mistakes because the love of God rests on us no matter what. The last lie that the enemy uses to steal our identity is this. I am what I am. I cannot change. I am hopeless. This is a lie that binds us up to a hopeless pessimism associated with poor self-esteem. It's this idea that I just can't help myself or that's how I've always been. You can't teach an old dog new tricks. This idea that I am what I am, there is no changing me. That these mistakes, these bad habits that I'm in, the, the decisions that I make, I'm always going to be that way. It's never going to change. I am what I am. I cannot change. I'm hopeless. And this leads to shame. This is what shame is. This sense of hopelessness this sense of inferiority. There's a passivity to it where I can't really take action. I can't do things. I, I lose my creativity. I isolate myself. I withdraw from others because I am what I am. There's no changing this. My identity is wrapped up in who I was and the rut that I'm stuck in. I'm an addict, that's how I always will be. I'm angry, I have a temper, that's how I will always be. Whatever that vice is, whatever the problem is, I'm gonna take on that identity. 
and that's just who I am. I will always be that way. And so the enemy loves to use that on us. If he can convince us that you can't change, then he has won. He has won if he tells you, you will always be this way. You will always be dependent. You will always be stuck there. And in that place of hopelessness, our identity is twisted up. And we no longer know who we are. And the enemy has a grip on us. But the truth, there is a truth. And that is the word regeneration. Regeneration means that I am a new creation in Christ. That the old is gone and the new has come. That it does not matter where I have been, Jesus restores me. Jesus remakes me. Jesus changes me. That there is hope of change. It is not a hopeless situation. There is hope that something can change. That through Jesus, all things are possible. Nothing comes between God and his love for us. He is going to pursue us no matter what. He wants you. He desires you. He longs for you. And he is going to pursue you through everything. That there is no end. There is no giving up. There's no, well, it is what it is. Because God is not going to give up on you. He wants you too bad. All of Scripture points to this. He is not giving up on us. He longs for us. In John chapter 3, Jesus replied, Very truly, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. How can someone be born when they are old? Nicodemus asked. Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. Jesus answered, Very truly, I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to Spirit. And so the message of Jesus and the, and, and the message of, of Scripture tells us that God is in the business of restoring God is in the business of renewing. God is in the business of rebuilding. And that no matter how broken things are, how broken your life is, how broken your relationship is, God can come in and breathe new life into that and restore that. He longs for that. He desires that for all of his children. And so here we have four lies, four things that, that the enemy uses to deceive us, things that, that he uses to tear us down, things that he uses to distract us from who we really are. You are not these things. You are not your successes. You are not your failures. You are not your mistakes. You are a child of God. It is not about how much you achieve. It is not how messed up you are. It is about you being pursued by a loving and holy God who wants you and desires you and longs for you. 
and he wants what's best for you. That's our true identity. That's who we really are. Let's be standing. I've spent the last week with a group of high school students going through the story of Scripture to say God is in pursuit of you. They need to hear this message so badly. But all of us need to be reminded of this. That God is in pursuit of you. He loves you and he longs for you. And you are not defined by the things that the enemy tells you that you're defined by. He steals that. He kills that. He destroys that. God wants you. And so we're going to open up for a time of prayer. And this is a time where you can come and pray with with me or one of the shepherds down front. You can pray among yourselves with one another as a small group, as as family, as, as a couple, however you want to spend this time. But my question for you is, is what are the lies that you have bought into? How has the enemy come in and, and stolen your identity? Call out the truth. Call out the truth to those lies. That we are born again. We are new creations. We are his sons and daughters. And he wants us so badly. God, we lift this time up to you. And I pray that... Um, you will continue to speak to our hearts. God, we pray that you will invade our hearts past all the lies that we have believed for so long and that we will see ourselves clearly as you see us. God, we give this prayer time to you as we, we spend time with you and our brothers and sisters. God, we thank you for Jesus and the life that we have in him. Amen.